And a very, very good afternoon. You are listening to Insight, or oh, indeed watching Insight here on Raw 1251am. And wherever you're watching us, whether you're watching us on our social media pages, you're listening to us on the station on Tuesday at one o'clock or indeed on Mixcloud and Spotify. It is fantastic to have your company. And what a week it has been. We've got a lot to unpack in this show, of course. A lot happened with the local elections last week. We discussed them quite a bit last week, but I think even some of many of the predictions that we made last week, quite a lot of storylines. I don't think many people quite predicted coming out of that. So we're going to be unpacking these throughout the show today. Of course, if you do want to catch up on what happened in the local elections, then Raw News was on top of it last week. We gave you all of the important races from the local area, including the West Midlands Metro Mayor, um, the Coventry City Council and the Warwickshire County Council races, as well as some of the key national races, the London Mayor election and the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Parliament elections. We'll be talking about all of these today. But if you do want to see some of the graphs, want to see some of the results, get a brief breakdown on some of the key events, they're all on Raw News. We have all of the graphs, a little bit of a brief kind of synopsis of what happened in all of those races. So make sure to check them out for more info on what's happened in the last week. Of course, plenty of other things relating to coronavirus. Of course, the lockdown easing is coming soon, um, coming next Monday, indeed. And we've heard some great news from Number 10 recently that will be allowed to hug people from next week. That one, one of the most important things in our life is coming back. We'll be talking about that in the end, as well, of course, as a return of indoor hospitality as well and many other things about this potentially being the closest to normality that we've been since September so very exciting indeed and of course we'll be talking a little bit about some of the other stories that have emerged within the week quite a lot it must be said now normally at this point I would introduce Will Kingswood um, my deputy head of news to kind of run you through everything that's happened within the last week because as we said there's been quite a lot Sadly, Will isn't available this week, so I'm going to bring in my guests instead, and we're going to I'm going to try and work it around through there. So let's start off with for I'll say former me, but my predecessor in the role, Enoch Bukungu. Very good afternoon. Well, welcome back to Insight. Firstly, um, it's good to good to be back. Um, very weird to be back, but it's good to be back. I missed this. <laughs> of course, we had Lucy on last week. We've now got you on this week and Lucy said it's very weird to be on the other side of it having kind of done all this for a whole year I mean how how are you finding insight now being sat on the other side oh I'm I'm loving it this is this is so easy I I remember I used to have to like plan the whole show prepare an intro um try and get everything ready I'm just I'm having a great time doing no work for this barely preparation besides reading Twitter (laughs) for the past week this is this is the best of all worlds Oh no, honestly, the amount of times I have to like scroll through Twitter, scroll through the Times, scroll through all every little news source yeah. to try and find everything so out. I'm so, it, so sorry it, for you. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but I'm enjoying it. That's the thing. I feel if I'm enjoying it, I'll, hap- I'll happily take on the burden. Yeah. But of course, Enoch, your job is now um, to look after the society funds. So of course, in the spirit of um, making sure that we can bring some exciting guests to interview over the coming year, um, how many champagne receptions will you allow me to have Zero. on the society I'm, I'm budget? I'm putting it right now. We're, oh. we're, you're not getting any. You're not buying any champagne with our money. It's not <laughs> happening, Cam. I don't well, I will now. As well. well, I will now be a very unhappy man this afternoon. So, thank you very much for that, Enoch. Okay, let's bring in my second guest now. He is a regular 
at Raw News, a very familiar face who we say goodbye to at the end of this term as well. But of course, we can't deny Johnny his last hurrah throughout this term. Johnny, very good afternoon to you. Hi, Cam. You okay? I'm 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 doing all right. You know, forgetting that my first exam is this time next week. You know, just just trying to just trying to get through the rest of it. But of course, Johnny, what's it like? You're coming into your last term now at Warwick. It's it's not been the conventional student experience for yourself. It must be said. What? How has it been? How are you feeling about it? Well, it's all a bit real, isn't it? It's all it's all coming soon. I finish at the end of uh, May, so in uh, about two and a half weeks, I'll be finishing my degree. And at many many points, I've been fed up with my degree over the past few years. And so I am um, pretty excited to finish. But also, it's it sort of closes the chapter, doesn't it? So it's quite a big moment. Um, but yeah, feeling okay, just trying to sort of get my head down and and, and finish it. And yeah. It's a small matter, small matter of the degree to finish now. Of course, um, you do a lot of reporting as well back home with Gateway, um, with your local radio station back home. And you were covering the local elections last week there. How, how did you find that experience? Well, I love an election. Honestly, the day before or the day of the election this year, because the count was, took place on Friday, it is just like the day before Christmas. It's just so exciting, so thrilling. I love it. Um, it was very interesting. The, being Just being at the count is such an exciting thing, obviously, where they work for all the votes. But with all the COVID restrictions, it was just so different. And I was separated from the candidates and all the counters obviously apart and screens and it took a lot longer than normal because of the, you know, the amount of people they could have at the count. Um, my my council I was covering in Basildon went from Labour, uh, Labour sort of independent alliance to Conservative control. Um, and yeah, pretty much all of Essex, which is the area I cover, went either stayed Conservative or went Conservative. It was a fascinating election. Yeah, it really... Um, it was, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the North. There's been a lot of talk about what's happening in the Red Wall and all of that. But actually, it's interesting to see the Tories regaining some of their Labour heartlands in Essex. Because two years ago at the last election, it was when Theresa May's Brexit deals were failing. And that was all, you know, a, a bit of a mess. And so people voted against the Conservatives and, and kicked them out in a lot of areas two years ago. Now here we are with Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He's taken quite a lot of it back. Well, indeed. I mean, ju- just just what you said there, that so much has happened in the last couple of years. I, 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 it's impossible to keep track of. Honestly, if this next year is just, you know, a little more relaxed, a, bit, a little bit like normal politics, I'll take that. But Johnny, great to have you on the show. Um, let's introduce my next guest now. First time on Raw, Lucy Young. A very Hi. good afternoon to yourself. Hi, thank you for having um, me. How are you? Um, ca- it's yeah. it's fantastic to have you on. Can I can I ask you? Obviously, this is your first time on Raw. Mm-hmm. Um, are you looking forward to it? Have you? How are you kind of finding the whole radio experience at the moment? Well, you know what, I've watched on Facebook many a time. So actually, being here and seeing myself on the screen, it's a bit surreal. But you know, talking nice. There's always a first time for everything. So no, definitely. I feel I feel that's just been the motto, really of university just throw yourself into anything you may find out you're very good at it and people may trust you to run a radio show which i, I feel is perhaps in my case one of the high expectations <laughs> i don't know I, f- I feel for the benefit of the listeners i should give myself slightly higher expectations so they know they know they're listening to something vaguely competent but um <laughs> lucy of course um you're a law student as well you're president 
of the law society mm -hmm. how are you finding all of that managing the degree balancing all of this as well as doing your little extras like this sure um well let's first start off with i think it's very difficult to balance things like that and most of the time i do not it's more kind of you know you have your list of priorities and you tick them off um every so often but no it's, it's great fun being president um can't really complain it's nice to have a, a really strong team that's elected this year um we've already started playing socials so yeah on, on the rise on the rise looking forward to next year yeah i think certainly after everything that's happened in the last year society's not been able to do as much as normal i think next year is something definitely to look forward to mm -hmm. lucy it's great to have you on the show let's bring on my final guest now a regular here at raw adam gravely welcome back to insights good afternoon cam it's fantastic to have you on um how are you doing at the moment obviously you're a master's student you've i think you've had most of your deadlines recently how have you, how have you found all of that so yeah i had most of my deadlines i've got one that's uh, due imminently and then uh, because I didn't get my Easter Easter break I am taking a couple of weeks off which I'm very much looking forward to um, managing as best as one can uh, my if you if you were to ever go and start stalking my um, my university calendar you will see that I I have this habit from when I used to in work I, you, you block out periods of time and you set yourself targets and that is how I've managed to keep afloat uh, with things and that's a skill that's taken me a good oh many years many years to develop and a lot more to learn definitely i could do i could do with some of that time management i could do with some of that ability at the moment i get up in the morning i write myself a little to-do list of what i want to do and i get to the end of the day it gets to about 10 o'clock and i'm like can i really be bothered to do this cleaning i said i was going to do can i really be bothered you know to do this little bit of washing half the time no, bed is too comforting in the evening. Once you're in, very difficult to get out. But Adam, fantastic to have you on the show today. Um, let's get on with our show now because, of course, we've got a lot to discuss. And I guess there's really only one place to start with last week's um, local election results. And, of course, not as, as Johnny kind of alluded to earlier, a very difficult night for Labour with many councils being lost within their heartlands, within the North and the Midlands, the Red Wall seats. And also, as Johnny was alluding to, places like Essex as well. Um, of course, not entirely a bad night for Labour, though. Um, there were some wins in Manchester, where Andy Burnham was elected by a landslide. Also, the West of England mayoralty as well. And also, arguably one of its biggest successes of the night, extending its majority in the Welsh Parliament and being able to govern by itself. Of course, a lot of questions has been raised about the Labour Party. Of course... After 2019, the debate was, can Labour win back its traditional voters? Does it need to move away from Corbynism and the left of the party? Does it need to move back towards the centre? Of course, a lot of debate whether the strategy has been right from the Labour Party. Critics on all sides have been going after Keir Starmer. Of course, Keir Starmer did reshuffle his shadow cabinet last night in response. Some big changes. Angela Rayner was moved Originally sacked as party chair, some controversy emerged over quite what happened there. She's now um, the shadow um, chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, so shadowing Michael Gove. Rachel Reeves, who was in that position, has been promoted to shadow chancellor, and Annalise Dodds has been demoted to party chair. Um, Enoch, let's start off with you on this, because we've, we talked a lot last year about Starmer and Labour, and can he get those traditional Red Bull voters back into party? And presumably from the results on Thursday night, 
he's not been able to do that and the situation in many ways has got worse. So we've gone wrong. I think the key thing to realise with Hartlepool, because I have a lot to say about this um, election, uh, probably too much for a single hour of radio show, <laughs> or even half an hour. Um, the key thing to realise about Hartlepool is in 2019, it, re- it, really, it should have fallen to Conservatives. The right-wing vote in Hartlepool was far larger than Labour's overall vote. Um, if you combine the Conservatives and the Brexit Party, and what we sort of saw here was that sort of coalescing. So the, the, the question is, is this an accurate judge of how good Keir Starmer is doing, or simply the final aftershock of 2019? I do think it's fair to say that you know the wider results show that his strategy is maybe not connecting with voters as much as they could. Um, but I, I, I think there's there's more issues with what he's doing currently, strategy-wise, than just things to win, win back Red Wall voters. He's was I, I think he's neglecting potential new voters in uh, what I'm gonna I'm gonna start calling the blue wall because I, I think I like the asymmetry of red wall and the blue wall. I think he's he's sort of winning voters in the blue wall. We just as well. have loads of walls in British politics. Yeah, now, we're that's gonna, what it we're, is. Yeah, it's gonna be just walls everywhere. We have the SAP wall, um, <laughs> DU, DUP wall, every 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 color of wall you can imagine. Um, yeah, I think he needs to start working on winning over the blue wall voters uh, down south if he really wants to win win another election. Well, let's let's just bring up some of these results then from um, Thursday night using some of the graphics that we produced here at Raw News. So starting off, I guess, with the result in Hartlepool that you mentioned there, Enoch. And um, quite interestingly, as you can see, so um, obviously Jill Mortimer, the Conservative candidate, won with about 51.9% of the vote. Dr Paul Williams, who was the Labour candidate, Labour's vote share fell by 9% in Hartlepool. In fact, that 23% difference between Conservatives and Labour is the biggest ever difference in the vote for a sitting government and an opposition in a by-election substantially more than ever before of course many of the seats as you said Enoch in the surrounding area did turn conservative at the last election I want to move on to this graph as well so this was the West Midlands Metro Mayor election and again this in 2017 was the first time for many that Labour's issues in their traditional heartlands that they were starting to have issues winning these voters over Andy Street extended his majority over Labour from 2017, an 8% majority over Liam Byrne. And again, raising the question with many of the voters in Wolverhampton, in Dudley, Solihull, Walsall, the exact sort of voters that traditionally very strongly Labour have now started opting Conservative. Um, Lucy, I'm going to come to you next. Um, Where do you apportion the difficulties that Keir Starmer is having with, the, with these Red Bull voters? Is it the leadership? Is it the policies? Or is it just maybe the government have been doing particularly well and benefiting from a vaccine bounce? You know what? I think it's a little bit of everything. You know, uh, Keir Starmer entered his leadership with his 10 pledges and realistically within a year he's managed to either fail to meet them or in fact kind of just completely neglect them and act against them. Um, I mean, going back to Hartlepool very briefly, I can understand why Jill Mortimer won the seat. She's the first female MP in the area to ever, you know, be there in that position. And also, like, the the Labour Member of Parliament, his main policy after receiving no guidance whatsoever from Anderson was to to let kids learn to read in the area. I I just think it's appalling. So mostly I think his Starmer is just unable to, to meet kind of the basic requests and demand from the public, which is to provide some policy for the people. I mean, Labour is about solidarity and Keir Starmer, whenever I saw him on the TV, there was nothing happening behind the eyes, unfortunately for me. Um, And a lot of the things he said were very empty. It was very kind of um, 
his campaign was just controlled, I think, to, to an extreme extent. Adam, if I can move on to you now then. So I guess Lucy makes a point there. A lot of it was on the leadership. A lot of it was on the strategy there. There have been a lot of calls from people um, in the left of the Labour Party. Diane Abbott, um, for example, on the night after the election, said that Labour needs... This is a sign that Labour need to adopt more of the radical policies, emphasising that Labour won that seat in Hartlepool in 2017 by with one of its biggest ever majorities. Of course, Peter Mandelson, in response, said to that, that if you take a look at the last 10 sets of general elections for the Labour Party, it's all loses apart from Tony Blair's three victories. So do you think that that ideological side of the Labour Party and the ideological divide there influenced this result? To an extent, but in reality, uh, Hartlepool, um, the, the the votes uh, were split between the Conservatives and uh, the Brexit Party last time around. So that probably helped Labour actually maintain control in Hartlepool. I think even if Jeremy Corbyn was leader this time around, they would probably still have been uh, looking at uh, potentially losing it. I think what the voters really want is they want some sound policies. They want a clear alternative that they can choose from. So they've got a clear choice between the government of the day, who were bolstered um, for their vaccine performance, or then potentially an opposition. Um, And quite frankly, I think that the voters are probably sick of factional arguments from two sides of the Labour Party deciding to air their dirty laundry in public. And maybe... One of the things that Andy Burnham, for example, has been able to do in Greater Manchester is he has been able to not take a factional approach, but actually look at getting the blend of uh, some of the radical alternative policies that can be delivered, but is also been somebody who's been willing to work with the government and at times even stand up to the government, actually work constructively with people across all sides of the aisle. And I think actually that is the strategy that Labour should have used this time around. I think they've got some good policy minds but they didn't have a strategy and they didn't have a message that was really clear to voters this time. Well, Johnny, let's come to you next. And let's talk a bit about Andy Burnham now, because Andy Burnham gave an interview to Sky News after the election. And there were two real, I think, key points he made. Firstly, um, a potentially veiled leadership challenge from Andy Burnham, saying that if the party called for me, that um, he would potentially come back. He would not turn it down. But secondly, a point on the party more in general. And he talked about the Labour Party in his views as being too London centric and saying that where the party had embraced local devolution, giving Manchester as the example, the party had done very well. So do you think then perhaps following on that Andy Burnham is right, that the Labour Party needs to move out of London, that it is too London centric and it's not embracing devolution in the same way as he gave with Manchester or the example he also gave with Ben Houchen in Tees Valley? The problem is most of Labour's MPs now are in London or, or or in that sort of area because they've lost so many of the seats up north. I don't think Andy Burnham wants to go for the leadership just yet. Um, he's certainly refreshing in, in, in a way, and I think a lot of people think that. He, he offers something different. He He offers a bit of um sort of he's got a bit of normality about him i think um he says that labor should embrace english devolution well so they should it's in labor's interests because there's only two conservative mayors or metro mayors around the uk everyone everywhere else from london to doncaster now to west yorkshire is all labor held or labor gained this time so of course it's in labor's interests um to hold on to that i think what 
the Labour leader Sakir Starmer, if if he wants success now, needs to do is go and spend a bit of time listening. I truly don't believe that he understands why people have voted Conservative and not for Labour. I don't think he gets it. Um, I'm not sure it, that that's discussed enough within the top of the Labour Party. And so I think he needs to spend six months or so going around the country, listening and understanding. Because there is a sense, I think, of from a lot of um, Labour people over the past few days on the TV or um, you know at counts and things, sort of f- feeling like the voters have made the wrong decision. Like, you should have gone for us. You, you were too stupid to vote for them. You really needed to vote for us. And actually not asking what are the issues that you care about? Why is it that you're changing your mind after generations of voting Labour? That understanding needs to be there. And of course, I know it's difficult with the election, of the next election probably a few years away, Sorry, someone's coming to arrest me here. With the election a few <laughs> a few years away, um, it's difficult to put policies forward, but we need to know what Sakir Starmer stands for. Um, I know he was the director of public prosecutions. He's told us that many times. I know his wife works in the NHS and his mum used to work in the NHS. But other than that, I'm not sure I know that much more about him. We need to know. We need to learn more about what the Labour leader stands for, and he needs to know why they aren't voting for him. He needs to listen. I mean, before before we move on, Johnny, I was going to say with that police car, you are dressed ra- rather appropriately, I must say, for such a scenario. Um, you know, I live between that... a fire station and a police station, and it's just like boom, 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 all the time. <laughs> I don't know. May- may- maybe this is a secret penchant for law enforcement just coming out now, Johnny. Um, I've got to ask very quickly, though, just following on from what Johnny said, that there were the Labour Party has traditionally been conceived as the party of Haringey and of Hartlepool. Of course, following Thursday, it has lost one half of that. But there's always been in the past, uh, I guess, a sort of a a coalition between its metropolitan and its traditional working class voters. And it seems that that increasingly has been strained over the last few years. And indeed, um, Paul Embry and Majid Nawaz, who have been two critics, two quite firm critics of Jeremy Corbyn, um, came out in the last few days and said that the approach by Keir Starmer is kind of following off what you were saying, Johnny, that tr- is treating working class voters potentially with contempt, why they're not necessarily listening to these voters and their issues. And indeed, there are many also within the party, again, emphasising the debates that have been going on on patriotism, on um, the Conservatives potentially emphasising strategic investment. So, Lucy, if I can come to you next, I guess, can the Labour Party reconcile its metropolitan voters in the cities and its traditional working class voters in the rebel seats to win them back. And Paul Embry suggested that in the same way as many of the traditional working class voters potentially lost some of their policies and had to make concessions for Tony Blair, do you think it now may now need to move the other way, as has been suggested? In terms of reconciliation, I think the party will struggle, especially with the reshuffle that's just happened. So obviously Nick Brown, the chief whip, um, was sacked after 37 years of service in the Labour and replaced by Blair's old whip, um, Alan Campbell. So that's, that in itself is very problematic and very reminiscent of um, Blairite politics. Um, e- even, even new MPs that have been given new positions, Lucy Powell, um, she's the uh, housing secretary and she's a landlord herself, so you can see the bias within that. I think 
if if Labour want to reconcile with you know different different areas of, of, of society, they need to kind of reduce this reliance upon kind of sectarian politics. I think it's it, it's causing a divide. Um, and current Labour with Starmer in charge is just it's depleted. So perhaps then following on from that, Adam, that if the Labour Party is, is it an issue then of the leadership not being able to put these policies forward? Is it worldview? Is it ideology? Where, where, where do you think the issues in reconciliation sit? Or do we even need reconciliation for the Labour Party to win again? We do need a certain amount of reconciliation. Uh, admittedly, we also need healthy challenge from all sides because that is how some of the best policy gets created through the running around of ideas. But the problem is we've got two wings of the Labour Party that generally don't see eye to eye on many things. And in reality, they have a lot of similar ambitions. But the problem is, is that they do not know what their ideology, what their identity is at this stage. And they need to look at how is it they can just tear up this factionless slate and, in a sense, start afresh. And, the, and dare I say, that the work that Keir Starmer is having to do is, is going to be a long-term project. Um, and unfortunately, that, that doesn't bode well for the next general election that could easily be 12, 18 months away, or the Batley and Spend by-election uh, that will, will be announced in very, very shortly um, and will, will occur at some point this, this year. Well, Enoch, I want to move on now, I guess, following on from what Lucy and Adam have said. Um, so we've had a comment in from the CMP movies. So they have said that, you know, they think it's important to not mistake land for voters. The locations have stayed the same, but the people have changed. And so talking about a brain drain, taking younger working Labour voters out of the north. And indeed, in the next comment, going on to say that these Red Bull seats are filled with older retirees who own their own homes. And again, that's the point even Boris Johnson has emphasised. He's going to talk about this in the Queen's speech, saying that it's about remote, stopping that brain drain and bringing jobs back to the north. So I guess in response to that, where do you think the Conservatives are? Do you think that it's the Conservatives having an appeal necessarily that's taking these votes away from Labour? Or is it potentially just Labour and internal conflict and issues that they have, meaning the votes are going to the Conservatives? I mean, firstly, I think it'd be very funny if Boris Johnson's plan ended up winning the North back for Labour. I do, I do, I find that fundamentally appealing. I, it's always a mistake to regard anything in British politics down to one party. Um, I, I think CMP moves there is right. We we have seen a change in the you know, the makeup of the Northern seats, and the Conservatives so start all the way back in 2010 when they first started trying to win, and also so did UKIP. That was one of their big pushes. They thought the people up north these aren't really Labour voters anymore. They are voters being tempted over by our message, um, and I, I. I I think it's this mistake Labour to think that they can't win people over anymore. Cause this is this is the sort of the coalition Tony Blair brought in when he won over Tory, Tory voters in the South. Um, but but yeah, I think the Conservatives the Conservatives can I think they can win over the they can keep these seats. These seats have these seats have changed, and now they start to build a Conservative. It, they might start getting the habit of it. That's that's how how it works. Um, but late in Labour in response, they do need to find a new coalition. They need to find, they need to go out. I think it's always a mistake to sort of pit working class versus metro because in these metropolitan seats, there are tons of working class people. That's where the economy is moved. This is where, where the workers are. And so Labour need to find a way of, of converting that strength there and then the strength there of working class people in, in cities and then winning over young middle class professionals who've been forced out of cities because they can't afford it and now spread out across the southeast and who sort of appeal to Labour on the education based values we see in the realignment there. 
and try and build a new electoral coalition. Otherwise, I don't think they're going to win the next election. Johnny, just to wrap up this section, I guess there's one result that Labour could turn to, potentially to use as the building blocks to potentially build this new coalition to win an election, as we've kind of been alluding to. This was the result of the Welsh Assembly election. And Labour, and again, bit of context, in the last election, Labour suffered a lot of losses throughout Wales as part of the Red Bull seats that turned to the Conservatives in the last election. Now, at least on the constituency level, last time out in, in this Welsh Parliament election, um, not the same um, decline in many of these seats. Many of the seats that turned Conservative in the general election, seats like Delyn, um, Inismon, for example, did not turn to the Conservatives this time out. They stayed Labour. And in the Welsh Assembly, Labour have got 30 out of 60 seats one off a majority effectively enough for them to rule in a minority. Of course, Conservatives did well, but took most of their seats off of UKIP in the list vote and not off of Labour. Um, Johnny, can I ask you then, what potentially could the Labour Party learn from Wales, potentially? Of course, Mark Drayford, someone traditionally on the left of the Labour Party, um, but has had, again, been incumbent throughout the COVID crisis, high personal approval ratings. Is, what I guess, what is there that Labour could learn from Wales, or is Wales just a bit too much of a sort of a microcosm for the that doesn't really explain the wider situation? I think Labour can uh, can learn from this sort of pretty stale, pretty boring man in charge of Labour in Wales can win, and maybe Keir Starmer can take something from that in in, in the rest of the country. But as you say, um, it is it's an area that's voted Labour for so long, and actually it would be far more concerning for the party if, if they hadn't done that. Um, the more interesting devolved nation is Scotland because, yeah, we can talk about the Red Bull. And yes, Labour probably need the Red Bull to win an election, whenever that may be. But uh, something I think has really been missing from the discourse over the past few years is that Labour can't win in terms of numbers if they don't get Scotland. And so they need to do something about the SNP, which is just so close to having a majority in the Scottish Parliament, and a Parliament was designed to never have a party in majority, so it just shows how well they're doing. So either Labour embrace independence, and they say, right, off you go, we're going to do an England, we're going to look at Wales and we're going to try and do something there. Or they try and, or they link their arms with Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, and they say, we're going to do everything we can to stop independence. They need to do something there about Scotland in order to win an election, because it's a numbers game. They just can't do it unless they've got Scotland. And of course, they need to do this whilst do, doing something about the, the, the northern areas and, and, and trying to regain something there. But it comes back to understanding why voters act the way they do. So why are they... Um, why are people voting for the Conservatives in the Red Bull? Yeah, we've touched on that. But why do people want independence and why do they want Nicola Sturgeon? They need to be asking these questions... And not talking over people, but sitting back, listening to the answers and having a good long think about it. OK, well, let's, let's, let's bring up the result of that election now in Holyrood. Um, so Scottish Parliament, as you said, Johnny, the SNP, one seat off majority, 64 out of the 129 seats in Holyrood. The Conservatives stay unchanged on 31. Labour actually went down two seats in the Scottish Parliament to 22. Um, of course, Nicola Sturgeon came out immediately and said that there is now a democratic mandate for Indy Ref 2. Of course, it became a big issue throughout the election. Um, Enoch, 
Do you believe now as a result of this election that there is a democratic mandate for IndyRef2? Um, well, it's, I, it's very complicated because clearly there's a majority of pro-independence uh, MPs in the Scottish Parliament. That is plain and simple. But if you look at in terms of vote share, um, there is a slight majority of, 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 you know, of unionist votes um, compared to independence votes. Um, but of course, the vote share doesn't matter when it comes to election. What matters is the number of seats they have, and the independents clearly have it. Um, whether or not um, Boris Johnson goes for it, I, I think he would be... He'll be an idiot. He'd be an idiot to go for it. Um, but I think maybe he could see us a chance to put it to bed once and for all again um, and, and try and win. There was a very interesting phenomenon, I must say. And Adam, I want if I can ask you about this. Um, Ruth Davidson put a video out on the morning of the election as part of the Get Out the Vote campaign. And she really emphasised making sure to get the peach votes, the list votes in that election. And when it came to the constituency votes, her exact words, I believe, were something like, um, if you can lend us your constituency vote, that would be nice. But the priority is the peach vote. So there was there were signs in certain seats that the SNP majority got stopped by um, unionist tactical voting. So do you think that this is potentially a watershed election as much obviously for the independence campaign saying there's now a mandate for Indy Ref 2, but also for unionists to show that they need to now bind together, put partisan differences aside to work on this i think what the election shows is that the idea of an independent scotland is incredibly split um and i think that's because there are various different avenues of what independence can look like but there are also various different avenues of uh what a new deal for the united kingdom could look like and a huge amount of that is going to really determine i suppose which way any future referendum campaign um would go uh, so we had uh, former uh, labor prime minister last labor prime minister actually gordon brown on radio this morning um uh, on media four talking about uh, the fact that they need to that if they're wanting to have an independence referendum this will need to be really clear what independence means and there needs to be a really clear alternative plan of devolution for the united kingdom so i think this this election all it's done is it's shown that the referendum debate is still about 50-50 and it could easily go either way if we're not if, if they're not careful. So cool heads really need to come together and really try and plan out what the options are on the table for the people to help there be an actually informed decision and a really clear indication one way or the other. No, certainly. And Lucy, if I can come on to you now, I guess following on from that, of course, independence, it seems, has been a big part of the referendum result. Nicola Sturgeon's emphasised a mandate for NDRF2. Of course, one of the things that Anna Sawar and the Labour Party did was try and move the debate onto issues of public services in particular. Obviously, Labour lost two seats in the last election. So is that a sign, perhaps, that the debate in Scotland is still going to be fixated upon independence until this issue is solved? Or... Perhaps is there a sign that other debates can be put at the forefront there? Well, this is the thing. I mean, um, they, they put forward the Sustainable Growth Commission report and a lot of the things mentioned within just kind of reinstill this urgency for neoliberal kind of politics and economics. Um, I think as well, the left of the the uh, the SNP has just it's been eradicated since 2014. And I think that's it's a great shame. Like they've removed a lot of important policies, like you know, access to education and free prescriptions and things like that. Um, but sorry, what's the question again? So I, I guess on the wider debate, 
it, yeah. it can it's, it's independence now effectively like brexit was mm. in the uk was an issue that's going to potentially paralyze anything else getting done in scotland until there's an in- independence referendum and given the result should is it perhaps should boris johnson perhaps just grant the referendum and then what either way it goes then put forward that you can now mm. focus on other issues this is the thing i mean it does appeared on the andrew marshall yesterday and when asked about the you know um, whether they take um, Scotland to the Supreme Court. I think you could definitely sense a, a little bit of PTSD in Gove's eyes when he said no and then kind of backtracked and kind of blithered all over the place. So it's pretty safe to say I think Scotland is a strong independent country. Just It's independent now as it stands today um, with, with a lot of the things that it already does. And I think influence from London and from Westminster is only kind of in, intoxicating their, their national kind of space and, and their infrastructural framework as well. Well, I think this is the constitutional debate in Scotland, as well as all these local elections results. There's a lot to unpack. And of course, trying to unpack it within half an hour is very difficult indeed. But of course, we'll continue to see the fallout both from within the Labour Party, both within the constitutional question as well. I think it's going to be very exciting to see. Um, We do have to move on now because we are slightly pushed for time because um, Insight is sadly not going to be around um next week um don't blame me blame the central timetabling office for that but um what is of course happening next week and i really wanted to kind of touch upon this today is the next stage of the lockdown easing and it was confirmed by the government last night that it is going to go ahead as planned um stage three so the return to indoor hospitality um as well as um groups of six being legally able to um go out in so legally being able to um hang out in people's homes um as well as that um outdoor group restrictions you can now hang out in groups of 30 outside from the may from may 17th and as well as that more indoor facilities so theaters cinemas are reopening we're seeing fans returning to sports stadiums as well and we found out last night that the government is allowing hugs again which i think i think is very wholesome they have given you guidance on how you should hug it should be i believe short kind of very short very quick and not face to face but apart from that you can you you can hug people as you could normally aside from that yeah scientific guidance on hugging i never thought i would have to report on that in my life but johnny um let's come to you first because obviously this is a this is by many people's standards the next stage of normality and there's an increasingly optimistic perspective that we're on an irreversible road out of lockdown now, that with the vaccination programme, we're being able to get back to normality. Are, are you optimistic for next Monday? Yeah, I think it's positive, especially as we look at the vaccination figures and we see that over two thirds of the adult population have received a first dose of a vaccine. And, and that just makes me so happy to think about. It is important, though, that we exercise caution and that we see that There's very few people out there now um, who haven't had a vaccine, um, you know, in the older generation. They're generally a bit safer. But look at us. Let's look at each other and say we are the people who could be carrying this virus around. And so it's our responsibility to be so careful. It's our responsibility to take rapid COVID tests. And you can get a box of seven from a pharmacy and they take just 30 seconds to do. And I, I do them twice a week and it's just nice to know. And when it comes to hugging and seeing people indoors and everything else, a lot of what people are doing already 
it's just so important that we exercise caution because we don't want to have to go back and we don't want to be the ones who have new variants going around and us contributing to the spread of that. I'm looking forward to it. I'm also looking forward to the fact that, you know, from the May the 17th, we're then just five de- five weeks away from the big freedom date of the 21st of June because, you know, it's four weeks plus one. So we're really getting there. It's so positive. It really, really is. We're getting closer to normal. Let's not blow it, though. Let's be sensible. Go and get a box of tests today. You're not special. You can get the virus just as much as anybody else. Make sure you're careful. I feel, Johnny, if you were the, the spokesperson for the government right now, have you, have you considered taking that job? I don't, just, think, just I, con- I don't just think my work would allow me to. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to convince people, because I guess that, that's the point. It's about getting back to um getting back to normal but doing it responsibly as well and there's a real emphasis being placed upon that and indeed obviously the optimism as well that's coming with it as you touched upon there johnny so much so that the government have said we may be able to relax social distancing on june the 21st um enoch do you think that this at this time right now with the fact that not the entirety of the population will have received their first dose by the June 21st. Obviously, we had discussions on vaccine passports previously. So I guess my first question to you is, does this potentially take the debate away from vaccine passports as a sign that the government are potentially not introducing them now? And secondly, do you think that we can return to no social distancing on June 21st? I I think the vaccine passports have died a quiet, very sad, unmourned death. Um, I think very safe to say Boris Johnson been convinced by the, the backlash from his MPs. He decided to go forward without without them, and uh, it's the right call as well. I think unless he can ensure everyone is vaccinated, that uh, there's no there's no going to work. On social distancing, I'm optimistic. I'm I'm choosing to believe, but uh, I, I I just. I don't want to be disappointed again. I can't be disappointed again. I can't get my hopes up in the idea that we're also just going to be gone on 21st and it doesn't happen. Uh, but I, I think overall there's enough positive stuff happening that I'm not particularly concerned about it. But it, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't see it quite, I don't see it's quite getting there. Well, I mean, it's very interesting because we've heard um, from scientists, including the likes of Neil Ferguson, who have been one of the most um, consistent on potentially on lockdown restrictions that even some of those who've been advocating it more have said that actually we're not going to have as much of a third wave as people are now saying, and that we may not need to go back in to restrictions. So there's an increased scientific consensus emerging that any kind of future COVID wave may not be as is unlikely to be as significant as any the previous ones we've had simply because of the strength of the vaccination program. Um, of course, though, there's one threat, and that is new variants coming into the country. And of course, we've seen recently. Um, in the past few months in this country, but also very recently in India, just how potentially problematic new variants can be. Um, Adam, of course, government last week announced a new, um, a new effective, effective tier system, the green, orange and red list for international travel. There's 12 countries on the green list, including Portugal and Israel. The vast majority of countries are on the orange list, meaning you can quarantine and self-isolate at home. The red list countries are those we have to go to the government hotels. Do you think we should be allowing any foreign travel if we can return the entire country back to normal, if there is even the smallest risk of a new variant coming in? Well, I think it has to be a balance of all the risks. And I do think what the government needs to do um, and what I hope they are doing and what I'm 
very confident with our scientists are doing is they're trying to really balance out all of these to look at scientifically what is going to be the impact of such and such a decision um as a as a lay person i would rather they err on the side of caution so that we can try and make this as irreversible route out of lockdown as is possible if that means delaying international travel if that means putting more countries on the red list uh, then i think that it's going to have to be the small price that we pay if it ensures that the vaccine can continue to be rolled out not just to us but to other countries around the world so that we can build up resistance to the virus which then allows us to unlock and continue to be, uh, ensure that virus rates are down keep the pressure off our health service and keep people safe i think Again, hopeful cause for optimism, at least domestically, of course, the international situation. Of course, the UK is a lot further ahead in vaccinations than a lot of other countries. Lucy, I'm going to give you the last word on this show today. Um, some scientists have said that they believe that we may be past the COVID crisis by the end of August, where people have had um, will have had their vaccinations. Most people have had their second doses by that time in August as well. Do, do you reckon that's feasible that we may come the start of term next year be back to as near normality at least domestically again i think it's nice to have optimism like that um perhaps in the uk you know we'll reach a certain threshold where we, you know we can kind of go back to a sense of what we perceive to be normality but globally speaking it's simply not the case i mean america and Joe Biden, for instance, with the uh, the, uh, the patenting on, on different vaccinations to basically just be made available to lots of different countries. And it, it's kind of more so about equipment and being able to globalise vaccination production. I mean, as you mentioned, India before, it, it's chaos. People are dying. And I think just within this month, there'll be a million deaths relating to COVID. So just because it's, it's not happening in the UK doesn't mean it's not happening elsewhere and then that ties into the variant argument as well and we don't know what can spring up and you know what we'll be able to avoid the vaccine if if that's even the science behind it i'm not entirely sure but um yeah i i, I don't think it's healthy to set expectations for ourselves when i don't know we're not past that certain stage yet so it, it we need to be realistic about it i think on a global scale at least well, certainly in the words of the World Health Organization, the crisis isn't entirely over, and of course, until everyone's been able to get vaccinated across the world and we've dealt with it there. But certainly at least some cause for optimism here in the UK. And let's leave, let's leave on a nice optimistic note for this week. Certainly, certainly something we haven't always been able to do over the last year. A big thanks to my guests, to Enoch, Johnny, Adam and Lucy for coming on the show today. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us on, Cam. <laughs> and thank you very much for watching. You can catch up with everything else that we've been doing on Raw News, including previous insights, including all of our interviews on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube as well. Um, insight will be taking a break next week, but we will be back this time two weeks with hopefully quite a lot to discuss. I'm sure, given how the news has been developing in the last few weeks, I'm sure we're going to have plenty to discuss. I hope to see you then. But until then, thanks very much for watching.